0: If you do and you didn't bring it this week, I hope that you'll begin to bring it um, next week. Um, We will have it on the screen often, but don't always rely on that. And part of why I'm saying that, it's not just because I'm an old man, which I am, but um, there is great benefit, um, particularly in not just seeing whatever little snippet you can get up on your little rectangle or your bigger rectangle. There's something to being able to see where is this even just visually What's coming before this and after? That's called context. If you're newer to our church, um, that's really important because I'm not going to get up here and go, let me tell you some stuff that I, I think I want to drive home at you and I'll figure out a verse. Um, we're doing a very rare exercise for a church in our day. We're going through the book of Malachi. Okay, and part of understanding Malachi is we've got to know the context, we've got to know the historical context, we've got to know the context within. God's salvation plan rolling forward we got to know all of that Um, And so just encourage you to uh, get in the word for yourself after this um, Wrestle with it, but also when we're here um, If you're able if you have one bring a physical copy if you don't we have copies uh, out in the lobby We want you to wrestle with God's word open yourself up, be receptive, and help your receptivity by being able to look at it uh, on a page. Again, I'm not anti you looking at it on your Bible app. That's fine. Um, my encouragement, though, is we all need a little bit bigger map, if you will, as we go into God's Word. I'm going to pray one more time, um, and then we're going to dive into Malachi, uh, mostly the beginning of chapter 3. Lord, as we've prayed each week during this series, we pray that you might turn our, way, our eyes away from vanity, the empty things of this world, and you might establish your word to us, your sons and daughters and your servants. Establish your word to us as that which produces reverence for you, that which produces the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of the wisdom to walk in the ways that you've designed life so that we might flourish not because you want to squash life, but, Lord, you want to see it germinate germinate, and flourish. So may we flourish a little more because your spirit helps us to understand your word and gives us the, the eyes to see, the ears to hear, the power to walk in it as we leave so that our worship is not just in this moment but a way of life. We love you and give ourselves to you now. In your name, amen. Testing, testing, one, two, three. You may have heard those words, or if you're a Saturday Night Live fan, I think Tom Hanks used to do sibilance, sibilance. That might actually have a sound tech (laughs) meaning, I don't know. But testing, testing, one, two, three. If you show up early enough here uh, on a Sunday morning, you may hear them doing a sound check. That's what you do in front of a mic. Um, is you speak into it, you sing into it, whatever. And often testing, testing, one, two, three. I actually read something this week that that's not very helpful. That there's a lot more you miss as a sound guy. I don't. Know, I'm gonna look back there. There's evidently some people, really smart people, said no, no, no. That's not near enough. What you need to understand, if the sound is of good quality, or if they're static, and and if you will. And so. Um, but testing, testing, one, two, three, I say that as a play on words because we're going to actually see testing in our passage today. Uh, the people are being tested just because life is difficult. We'll talk about that in a second again. The people themselves are testing God. And then, strangely, God gives an invitation of a certain kind of testing of Him, which most of us walking in here this morning go, no, no, that's illegal. Well, we'll see what God has to say about it. But this passage, testing, testing, is what we're going to see and hear as we re enter Malachi's world around 432 BC. That's not an exact date. Nobody knows exactly when. But it's sometime um, around that 430s BC range. But man, is it 2023 ish? As has been prayed by Eric, uh, by Brian. Um, We've got a lot of uncertainty in our world. We've got a lot of painful things. That's in the macro. Many of you, many of us, are experiencing pain, difficulty, uh, agonizing over things we can't control or we just can't see or put put them together, make sense of them. And then on top of that, in the macro, to kick more dust up, if you will, constant threats of war economy spiraling down crops failing corruption in politics corruption in religious leadership it's a harsh and hostile time and am i talking about now or am i talking about malachi the answer is yes everything seems to be unraveling and even for god's people hope deferred makes the heart sick the Proverbs says they're experiencing that because hope is vanishing. Where is God? God's people are weary. And they already said, it, we've experienced it already a couple of times, they say, this whole idea of showing up for worship, my, how tiresome it is. They actually say that. And then they uh, a couple other times they mention it being weary. Well today we're going to begin with these shocking words in Malachi 2:17, Malachi 2, 17, it'll be on the screen. These shocking words. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, how have we wearied him? Let me tell you, God says, in that you say everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or where's the God of justice? The shocking statement there is he says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Now, it's not the words themselves. It's the heart that uh, those words are coming out of. Jesus told us, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And he's saying, as you speak, as you sing, whether you say it verbally or you think it internally, to say that this whole business of worshiping God, what's the point? Where is he? Because I look around and I see those that I think are wicked and they're living fat and happy, which I know in our culture is not good, the fat part, I think, but for them, that was it. They're living fat and happy and they have no hard stuff. How does that jive, God? We're supposed to be your people the people of your promise, the people that you made a covenant with, the people that you have brought us out of exile. Yeah, we know our forefathers were kind of off the rails and you took them away to Babylon, but we've been back now for a good while and we've even rebuilt the temple and we've started to worship again. Why is life so difficult? Why is it so uncertain? Why am I not sure if my family's gonna eat? Why am I so strapped financially? God says through Malachi, you have wearied the Lord with your words. And that's the next slide. This is the next dispute. We're actually going to look at two disputes today. If you haven't been with us, um, the Bible is real and raw. The Bible will speak what is going on in our hearts, whether we want it to be exposed or not. And in Malachi, this is full on. God is looking for those who would worship him, like Jesus says in John, wholeheartedly, full of spirit and in truth. But what he's finding is that the people, because they're not sure that, where are you, God? So they're like, we're not sure you love us. Um, We're not sure this is, what's the point of this, you know, revering your name and 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 fearing you and worshiping you and sacrificing to you giving you our best little lamb that's going to cost us dinners it's going to cost us money and that feels very insecure where are you and so they have these back and forth and malachi voices not only some of the grumblings that that probably spill out sometimes but he's also voicing their inner suspicions that maybe god isn't good Maybe God can't come through. Maybe God is the one to blame here for how bad life is. So why, do I keep, why would I keep putting myself in that kind of painful place when you don't come through? So Malachi, there's six of them. We're going to cover two today. We're going to get really worn out so we can feel the weariness of the Lord who deals with people not just like them, but just like us who often say, what have you done for me lately? I'm not sure I, I, I could give this. I'm not sure I can take giving more attention to your word when I don't see anything panning out in my life. And so this is the first one. How have we wearied him? The next one, which you don't have to turn to, Jared, yet, is how shall we return? Because God, in his grace and mercy... Though they weary him, he is ever patient. He is ever gracious. As we sang and prayed, his mercies are new every morning, including this morning. No matter how you've come in here, his mercies are new for you and me today. And yet, if we're honest, we know that we often have those inner suspicions of God that they have, or we have those grumblings in us, or those, resistances within us to say i'm not i'm not unclutching you don't get this part of me because i'm not sure i can deal with the anxiety of opening my hand and letting that into your hands they say how have we wearied him and god says well because you're basically saying we look around the evil who we surely couldn't be they seem to be living life just fine so where is the god of justice Where are you, O God of justice, the one who redeemed us out of slavery? We we still find ourselves enslaved. We still find ourselves wondering when are things going to change for us? And they say, where is he? As if he has left them, abandoned them and gone. Now go back to Deuteronomy 4, this next slide. Deuteronomy 4 is when God in his grace and patience, having to put up with complaining and grumbling folks whom he brought out of Egypt, but they had gotten to such a point, is that me? They'd gotten to such a point where God says, okay, well, you've tested me in ways you shouldn't. You, you've, you've sealed yourself off from me, if you will, in such a way that I'm going to let all of you that I redeemed out of Egypt die off and your children Does that mean? (laughs) And your children are going to be the ones who go in. So Deuteronomy is actually, it means second giving of the law. And so imagine a big retreat. Moses wrote Deuteronomy, and it's the second giving and the reminder of the covenant relationship of this one who redeemed them, not because of their worth, but because of um, his grace, his mercy. I'm going to pull it out of my shirt. No? All right. And uh, so here in Deuteronomy, Moses says, As I give you this, what other nation is so great as to have their God near them? Listen to that. What other nation is so great to have their God near them? The way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him. And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm setting before you today? In other words, he loved us when we were unlovely, He set his grace and mercy on us and redeemed us when we had no redeeming qualities. And now being him, the one who loved us before we were lovely or could be lovely, now gives us law. How does Malachi start? If you sneak a peek back over to chapter one, verses two to five, he says, I have loved you. He doesn't start with, hey, here's all the ways you guys are breaking our rules and I'm I'm taking you out. That's not how he starts Malachi. He doesn't start with any commands he says i have loved you and when he says it in that tense he's saying i have loved you i am loving you and i will love you and john jesus would say there's nothing that can snatch you out of my hands because of my perfect love but again where reason why these questions are bubbling up, the reason why they're saying, where's the God of justice, is because of the situation going on. Because the covenant he made with him, if you obey me, I will bless your socks off. But if you disobey me, because you're mine, and because I love you, I will discipline you. I will bring these curses upon you. Basically, remove the blessing so you feel it, so that you might return. And when you return, I will return to you. That is the nature of of their relationship. I want you to hear this. Malachi, if you got there, then you found that it was right next to Matthew. You probably hit Matthew and then went left. Matthew's the beginning of the New Testament. Malachi is the the end of our Old Testament. Well, Malachi is the last voice of a prophet in the Old Testament. But Malachi was around the time of the last narrative, the last part of the story in the Old Testament that we have in our Old Testament is actually for us Americans, it's like it's in the wrong place. It's like in the middle, it's Nehemiah. Because Nehemiah, after the people had come back from Babylon, they had rebuilt the temple. Worship is happening, but the walls were down and Nehemiah came from Persia and helped rebuild the wall. And also with Ezra's help began to reorder people, the, the people of God, with, realign with the word of God. And they began to say, yes, we want to return to to him and we want to worship him. And in chapter 9, I want you to see this is the context with which Malachi is speaking. Nehemiah, as the leader of that time, is praying. This is his prayer. However, he's talking to God. You are just in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. For our kings, our leaders, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your admonishments with which you have admonished them. But they in their own kingdom with your great goodness, which you gave them with the broad and rich land which you set before them, did not serve you or turn from their evil deeds. Behold, we are slaves today. And as to to the land which you gave to our fathers to eat of its fruit and its bounty, behold, we are slaves in it. It's abundant produce is for the kings whom you have set over us. Why? Because of our sins. They also rule over our bodies and over our cattle as they please. So we are in great distress. That is an understatement. They are in great distress. I want you to hear. I'm going to take it out. um They're in great distress with all those things. Their crops are failing, corruption in the government, corruption in the, the priesthood and all that. And Nehemiah acknowledges to, acknowledges to God what is sometimes true. When you're experiencing affliction, difficulty, sometimes it's of our own foolishness and our own sin. Okay, let me pause there. When difficulties come in your life and mine, when there's affliction when there are things that just aren't working, it's not always your sin. It's not always my foolishness or yours. Sometimes, well, always, at least the backdrop, and sometimes the explanation is, we live in a fallen and broken world. Since Adam and Eve sin, this sin uh, sin has, has fractured and broken this world. And, Therefore, stuff just doesn't work sometimes, and stuff is against us at times. Second reason why difficulty comes sometimes is because there's some other sinful people who are wronging you. Now, our world would try to tell you that's always the issue. It's always somebody else. It's always either God to blame or somebody else's fault as to why you're experiencing difficulty, disappointment, heartbreak, anguish, you name it. But sometimes, and Nehemiah is cluing us in, in this case, sometimes it's the discipline of a God who set his love on his people and he wants what he designed for them to flourish in relationship with him and that has been fractured and diminished and he says, I want to restore the opportunity for you to flourish in life in relationship with me. The Nehemiah's prayer in Nehemiah 9 is probably around 444 B.C. Don't worry about the dates and at the end of, after this prayer, the people are like, yes, we have sinned, we have blown it, and they put in writing, we will return to God. The reason why I told you the dates, 444, Nehemiah goes away for a decade, probably, and he comes back in Nehemiah 13 and finds out, oh, we didn't do squat with what we said we were going to do. That's why I'm saying Malachi's 432. We don't know exactly. What I am saying is, the people... They were at the last night of camp, and it was around the campfire, and they all repented, and they're like, we are horrible people, and we return to you, God. And here it is in writing. And even not only us campers around the campfire, our counselors repent. We're all in. Here it is in writing. And they didn't do it. And they didn't do it for years. And the corruption got worse. And then Nehemiah returns, and he finds there was corruption where people are stealing from God. Their story, they're, they're letting people Sleep near, you know, somewhere in the temple. Um, he's he has to go. What in the world? And has to clean house, if you will. And Malachi is the voice of the prophet saying, God is saying, you are wearing me out. Now, when I say that, I want I know you're probably going. Well, wait, I thought God doesn't get tired. You're right. Isaiah 40, right? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. He does not grow tired nor weary. Absolutely right. Also in Scripture, we're told that God never sleeps nor slumbers. God doesn't get tired. He doesn't need a Sunday nap like you do. He doesn't need a Wednesday nap. He doesn't need melatonin. He is ever energetic, if I can say it that way. He is life itself and teeming with life that will not be exhausted. But when he uses weary here, Weary here is a a way to vividly convey that God's patient and gracious endurance of his people's rebellious and insulting attitude toward him. He's still patient and he's enduring, but it's with a divine sigh. Now, every one of you who's a parent in here knows that. His love doesn't change for his people. Your love for your child doesn't change, right? But when the 27th time of them going against you, talking back to you, whatever. And you're not even close to being a good, a a perfect parent. You're a good parent, sorry. A perfect parent. He's the perfect one. And he's saying, this doesn't match. This isn't fitting my worth and all that I've given you. But I'm still, I'm not going out. I'm not loving you. I'm just going You weary me because I know where life would be fuller. And that's if you would be full hearted with me. So he says, you have wearied me with your words. And their question is, where's the God of justice? Because we look around and we see stuff that just doesn't make sense. And it hurts and it's hostile. And why are you letting us as your people suffer? So where is the God of justice? Here's what they're saying in our way of saying it. You're not who we thought you were. And some of you, I would say, you might be younger uh, in, in your faith. Some of you might be in this place, and you're older in your faith. You may have come to faith in Jesus Christ because somebody scared you to death, and you're like, I better get that ticket to heaven. Or a lot of times nowadays, they'll say, hey, if you'll trust Jesus, everything will go incredible in your life. And it's nothing but trajectory up. And all of a sudden, you're like, ooh, that, that hurt. Wait, why didn't this come through? Where are you? And they're saying, you're not who we thought you were. They needed their picture of God informed. They needed it corrected. They needed to know, well, where are you, God of justice? And he says, well, here's my answer, verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, behold, pay attention. I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. Let me stop here. I'm going to kind of go quick through the, the rest of the text. I want to start the, the deal with man. What a hard place they're in. Here's God's answer to it, and here's his answer to you and me. Where am I? You think I've abandoned you? You think I don't care? You think I can't handle things? For us, we're looking back. This is 400-plus years before the person in 3.1 shows up on the scene. The person in 3.1, look at it again. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Who is that? John the Baptist, prophesied in Isaiah 40. He's going to you know, make, make a way for the, for the one of the Lord who's coming. He's going to clear it. I'm the, I'm, the, I'm the recon guys doing the party to clear everything out before the king shows up. That is, he says, you want to know where the God of justice is? Oh, he's coming. But before he comes, I'm going to send one who goes before him. And a little play on words, I'm going to send my messenger, Mal- Malachi. Malachi. I'm going to send my messenger. In one way, little way, Malachi is you know, a messenger. But John the Baptist is going to be the messenger who is the messenger who clears the way, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. I'm clearing the way. He's coming. And then he says, you know, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's John the Baptist's ministry. That's why he would say later, I'm supposed to now decrease so that he might increase. It wasn't for me to be the man it was for him. God says, "You want to know where the God of justice is? He, you want to you want to say that I delight in evil? You think things aren't really fair?" He says, "You're going to see. You want to see who I am and where? The answer to the problem, God says, will be myself. I will show up, and you will know justice like you didn't know." justice in this kind of clear and powerful way and the Lord whom you seek and I think he's being a little he's messing with them this Lord whom you seek who you say where is he oh he's going to show up he will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight behold he is coming says the Lord of hosts this is Jesus the forerunner is coming And then the messenger of the covenant, the new covenant, will be Jesus. Remember, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He initiates uh, that new covenant. And he is that one who is to come. He's different than my messenger who will clear the way, because suddenly the messenger of the covenant will come. Behold, he is coming. And then he he says, verse 2, The way... The one you're looking for was everything is neat and tidy in your life and works for you. But guess what it's going to be when he shows up? Though he says suddenly it'll be 400 plus years. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a a launderer's or fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and a purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Where is the God of justice? He's coming. Suddenly he will show up. That suddenly won't be for them because it'll be over 400 years. But he says, I'm sending my messenger. And he's particularly saying It's going to be a time of judgment. It's going to be a time where judgment will begin with the household of God, with the people of God. And so this justice that you want, you feel like you're fully justified that everything should go well for you, that you've got no part in why things are going south. He says, it's your foolishness. It's your sin. It's your testing of me, and I'm, I'm taking care of business, if you will. Now, a lot of us in here may think, okay, but I know Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who in Christ Jesus. In other words, I don't have to fear. If I've trusted Jesus, and this is true, if I've trusted Jesus as my Savior, I belong to Him, there's nothing can snatch me out of His hand. I don't have to fear judgment that would end in separation from Him forever. I don't have to fear condemnation God saying, "Nope, guilty and you're out. But what we oftentimes are unaware of is that we as believers will also face a judgment. In verses one through four, he's talking about his own people, and then particularly for us as his church, we will face judgment. First Corinthians three, the next slide, a couple of slides. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, the foundation is... Jesus Christ, and being in relationship with Him. If you and I have trusted Him, He's our foundation. It won't give way. But now, what's the life that we're building on that foundation? He says, you can do it with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, a straw. Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it's to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he's built on it remains, he'll receive a reward. That's what we can look forward to. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so, yet as, so as through fire. He's saying we're all going to face uh, elsewhere. It's, uh, it's called the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ. You and I don't have to fear, nope, you're not in. We belong to him because of his grace and mercy and, and our faith in him. And then he says, what will you do with the life I've given you and the the gifts I've entrusted to you? How will you build a life that glorifies me? He says, if you do it with wood, hay, stubble, it's going to burn up at my judgment. My eyes of fire, though loving and gracious, it'll burn off all the dross. That's what he says in Malachi. Like a refiner of metals, the dross will go off. Why? Because he's a mean metal worker? No, he wants to get the dross out so the beauty and the strength would be in, would, would would be brought out, would be uh, purified, so that the best of the best would come out. He's saying that's what I'm after. So me taking you through what I'm taking you through right now, you need to trust that I'm after good. Uh, we should watch the video. We reflected on it a little bit during the songs. Romans eight twenty eight. I almost didn't show that video because you cannot read Romans eight twenty eight without Romans eight twenty nine and thirty. As we read it, and we say, well, I know that God causes all things to uh, to work together for good. And we think, my life is going to be good. Good in how I define it. It's going to be good for me. It's going to be pain-free. I'm going to, like, kind of float on air, and all of life's going to come to me. 29 and 30 tell us what the good is. For those whom he foreknew, he also conformed to become... uh, also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. That means there's going to be smelting, refining, burning off, because He's going to be using everything, good, bad, and ugly in your life, to make you and me more and more like His Son, Jesus. And the judgment seat of Christ is where we get to, um, hopefully, that helps us say, wait, I want to live in such a way that I hear well Well done, good and faithful servant. I want to hear, enter into your master's, the joy of your master. I want to hear, I want to receive reward from him, not because I'm after the reward as much as as that satisfaction of, I have lived pleasing to the Lord. With the judgment seat of Christ, it's not like, I don't know if you're in or not. He says, "Woo! some of you, some of us, we got in, but a little smoke coming up. And that is the first four verses. But then, verse 5, Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, and those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Why? Verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. You're saying, well, "Where's, where's the God of justice?" Well, He's coming, and He's going to bring justice, and He's going to start with judgment with the household of God first, and then He says, "Then I'm going to, then I'm going to go to those who don't belong to me, and they're going to receive judgment." And that's really the second, the second coming, and that's that judgment for those who um, are non-believers. But then he says, he comes back around to really the whole question. You question, where am I? You, you, you're blaming me for your difficulty? You don't realize I do not change. Hold on, go back. He ties one thing in. Though. He says, I do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. He says, you want to know an evidence that I'm, that I'm with you still? That I'm that God that's so near? And what, how, what other nation has a God so near? I'm near and I'm wearied by being near to you at times, like a parent. He says, but I haven't wiped you all out. You deserve to be wiped out, but I haven't wiped you all out. Why? Because I am always true to my word. And I said I would preserve for myself a remnant. And out of that remnant is going to be becoming the one who I said will come. He says, I don't change. It's the immutability of God. He doesn't say, well, eh. He sticks to, and he's faithful to his word, and he's particularly faithful and loving as a father to his people, like in Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, he says, you know, don't, we shouldn't regard that lightly. My son do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. and he scourges every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline. In other words, I, I tell our boys, like part of the reason why I give you a curfew is when I was in high school, there were a couple of my friends had zero curfew. And they would, they would sometimes not even come home all weekend. And if they came home, they weren't sober and they were also on other things. And a couple of them are dead now. And because I love you, there will be certain things that feel a little bit restricting or there will be course corrections or there will be hard conversations that hopefully will be moved into with gentleness and patience and tears. But like the author of the Hebrews says elsewhere, I'm convinced of better things for you. I'm convinced of what, if you would give wholeheartedly yourself to God and return to him again, there might be a flourishing that he always intended. And so God enters into discipline with us, not because he's a meanie, not because he's just awful, but he's fierce in his love for you and for me. Our problem is, verse 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. It is. Pain hurts. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. What God is after with the people in Malachi's day is, I'm seeking to bring about fruit of repentance in your life. He says, so I do not change. Therefore, let's talk about you. Verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you," says the Lord of hosts. But you say, "How shall we return?" In other words, there there there's almost a tinge of wait us. We need to return. How, how is that? And he says, "Well, I've already I've, I've already told you. You question my justice or my faithfulness to what I've promised. I, I'm I'm." right there steady hand my plans my promises are moving forward and they will move forward and it will involve justice and so now let's talk about you from the time that we've entered into this covenant your fathers you have a track record the apple doesn't fall far fall far from the tree that i've had to deal with the stiff-necked people obstinate resistant distancing from me, and like we've seen in Malachi, going, eh, I don't want to give up our prize lamb. Let's take little Timmy here, you know, just picture a lamb with like an, an eye patch and one and three legs. Let's take that one, and the priests were in trouble, right, because they're the ones supposed to be representing God to the people and God's standards and God's value and worth, which is what worship is to declare his worth. They should be saying, give your first and your best because he's worthy of it, And he's the one who, anything you have is from his hand. So put it back in his hand as a way of declaring his worth and your trust, but they weren't doing it. He says, let's talk about you. I don't change, but boy, Nehemiah 9, you guys wrote a promise. Nehemiah 13, several years later, you still haven't come through on that promise. In fact, you've kind of gotten worse and unraveled more in terms of how you treat me. How shall we return? Well, God answers them in verse eight. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? He says, in tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, then I will rebuke the devourer. The devourer is meaning those insects that are eating your crops and those other things that are making the barns a little, you know, less full. Then I'll rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord. How do they get to that place? Return to me. How do they return? It, it's a little off-putting to us, but he says, giving. He says, test me in this. You guys are robbing me. The word literally means defrauding. Think the picture of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts. They gave, and it looked like they gave a huge sum, and they did, but there was deception in it. They saw Barnabas give a bunch, and they're like, "Hey, he kind of got the apostles going. Hey, man, thanks for your gift. So let's do this." And they go to give their gift, and it looks like from afar, when you can't hear what's going on, looks like they gave equally. Like we'd be like, "Ooh, man, you know, let's give them the the free T-shirt and the whatever. Thank you for giving." And they die on the spot. God kills them. Why? Do we have to fear that? Well, I, I, I believe at least back then it was God saying, my church is embryonic. It's infant stage. I am protecting it from being founded on deception and lies and pretense. Because the worship I'm looking for is worship in spirit and in truth. The worship I'm looking for is from an authentic heart. It's not for the applause of men But it's knowing that even if I give something or I pray or I fast and I do it in a way that's not to bring fanfare to myself, my Father who sees in secret will reward me. And so I'm going to trust in that. He says, test me in this. And I wrote, wait, what? Again, Jesus, when he's being tempted by Satan, says, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6, where it says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Right? so isn't it forbidden? But now through Malachi, the Lord says to his people, Test me now in this. The this is, demonstrate my worth and your trust in me by giving me your first and your best, even in lean and mean times. I don't know if you've ever been there. But we, as a family, talk about, you know, we want to be generous. We want to be grateful. We want, and we try to say it here. Your giving is an act of worship, and it's a way of investing what God's doing in and through Allen Bible, similar to what there's. God's saying, "There's not food in my house. The priests aren't being taken care of. Worship is raggedy." So let's start there. And he calls it tithes and offering. You won't hear us teaching on on tithes here this isn't to bash that if that's kind of where you are tithe literally means 10 percent i will say this the tithe for them was more than that probably within 22 to 27 percent and some years it got up to 40 percent i think most of us don't believe in it like that and now that's not the that's not the point that's just to give you a little bit of uh, background, but we believe that what God gives us is that opportunity to do what is fitting and generous because he's been generous with us. And Second Corinthians 8 and 9, we taught on this last fall, in that um, those two chapters, Paul talks all about generous giving. He never gives a command to give. He says, but God loves a cheerful giver. He's not saying don't give. He's not not doing anything like that. But he's saying what God wants is for that gift to be in such response to his worth. And yes, it will be sacrificial like his gift, which we'll look at in just a second, the gift that he gave his son. But it's fitting, it demonstrates trust, and it's me unclutching. And so for us says, test me now in this. He, he's saying, are you giving your first and your best? Uh, each one must do, Paul says in Second Corinthians 9, each one must do as he's purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. So you may want to start with a generous tenth. That's great. We won't, you won't hear any negativity toward that. I do think each of us is supposed to, between us and the Lord, go, what Lord are you putting on my heart? And what we don't want to do is sit up here and, Ring it out of you, because then you'd be giving out of compulsion. What is God looking for? A cheerful giver. It literally means hilarious. So just think of when you, when you see something and you're with some friends and you laugh and you just can't stop laughing. That's the idea. There's just an overflow of the heart. If you're like, up, oh, yep, first time coming here, I knew it. This guy at Allen Bible is going to talk about money. You don't. I'm not telling you give a dime. Here's what I am after, like Paul in Philippians four which is a thank you note to the Philippian church for supporting him. That's what it is. He says, not that I seek the gift itself, like what you give, but I seek the profit, which increases to your account. What's the profit? It's what God is doing in that person's heart when they let go of what could easily be clutched, especially in lean and mean times, as a way of saying, God, I want to invest in what's eternal and what you have put on my heart. So test me, yes. When can we test God? We see Abraham do it. We see Gideon do it. We see Elijah do it. We can test God when it's according to his will, consistent with his promises and plans. It's for his glory, and it's out of a heart of faith and simple obedience. When it's not okay to test the Lord, which is probably verse 17, and most of Malachi's people response to God, it's when it's against his will, when it's it's challenging his promises, his plans, and his intentions when it's for my own interest. And when I'm doing so, I'm I'm seeing the world, I'm clutching out of fear and anxiety or contemptuous rebellion. Then I'm just testing him because I'm like, I'm trying to find a way to justify self-indulgence and distance from you. All this does is breed disappointment, greater contempt, and a hardened, hardened heart. And what God is really after is the heart. Jesus himself said, store up treasures in heaven. He says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. But he tells us there's an impossibility. No one can serve two masters. We cannot serve both God and mammon. What is Jesus after? Jesus needs your money? Does God need your money? No. What he knows is where my treasure is, where my investment of my money, my time, my attention, where I put that, I will grow devoted to it. We say it often here. Lord, help us to give you our attention so that our affections might follow. And boy, we are a continuously, partially attentive people. We are distracted. And God says, return to me is a return to wholeheartedness. So my simple question to end, and I'm gonna have the worship team come up, is how will you return to him? Beware of drift. The people had drifted, and they were they were becoming embittered. They were becoming those who are like, I can't trust you, God. So therefore, why would I give? Why would I try to stay consistent and faithful with this rule you've given me, your command? Well, God is gracious enough, though He may sigh, to say, "Return to me, and I'll return." To you And judgment begins with the household of God, says in 1 Peter 4. Let that be not a guilt trip, but an invitation. For some, it may not be, starting with, well, how am I viewing money? How am I, am I clutching to it? For some of us, it may be some other area where we are just resistant to allow the Lord to have all of us, because if we're honest, Most of us are weary, and I've said this before quite a bit this past year, but the antidote to weariness and exhaustion isn't let me catch up on my rest. If you need some hours of sleep, great. But the antidote to exhaustion, particularly as is described here, and a weariness to worship is wholeheartedness. The reason why Jesus says where your treasure is, there will your heart be also, you can't serve. He wants your heart. To be restored to him so he says i don't want those clutches you clutching your stuff and your possessions they are often an indicator they are an indicator of where our true worship our true trust is worship team come on up i'm going to pray and then i'm going to actually have us read the benediction and then they're going to have us sing the same benediction or pretty much Lord, uh, you are gracious, you are patient. I pray that we hear your challenge here as as an invitation to to freedom, to a life that is full and wholehearted, not clutching, not clinging to what um, we want, but Lord, opening our hands again to you, opening our hearts then as they follow. So that you might receive our thanks, that then we might be able to return to the simple joys of enjoying the life you've given us. Like Agar, Lord, we pray that you not give us too much or too little, because we don't want to deny you, uh, we don't want to steal from you or profane your name, but we simply want to devour the portion you've given us, because you are a good God. Where we've questioned your goodness, our faithfulness, and we question whether being generous just some preacher saying I ought to give. Lord, help us to see the beauty of the truth that our giving of ourselves wholeheartedly to you, including what we might give financially, including what we might give in serving others, sacrificing our time. Lord, that's in response to your generous gift, the gift of your son, Jesus. And so may you hit our hearts with gratitude. May you woo us out of the anxieties that seem like we're being really responsible people if we'll just keep worrying and wringing our hands. If we'll keep clutching our stuff, then we'll be wise. Lord, you're saying that, that the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in your son. May we find him more beautiful than when we walked in here. And Lord, may he be beautiful as we look to him because you say those who look to him are beautiful. May the radiance of Christ mark us as a people so that others are drawn to him. Pray this in his name. So if you'd stand, um, I want to remind you, before we say the benediction, our picnic is today. It's going to be a blast, but it's really going to be a blast when all of us are there. Even if you're like, hey, I'm not a social person or I can't play pickleball or whatever, just come hang out. Um, We need the fellowship there are maps in the lobby don't trust your GPS is what I'm told So there are maps in the lobby under the TV on the left there's a black table pick up a map before you go and it starts at 430 now we're going to do this three ways I'm going to say it first as a blessing and benediction over you then because we're the priesthood of believers you're going to say it out loud together and I'm going to be quiet and then they're going to lead us in singing the same benediction and then we're just dismissed alright the Lord bless you